0: can have a seat everyone and you've already experienced the fullness of of an exciting morning and being with us and we're always overjoyed. And I want to say again a special welcome to you if you're here as a guest or here uh, maybe just uh, the first few times and and church is kind of a new experience. Maybe you're watching online and and you're not even ready yet to take that step to even visit the church. But, uh, you know, I want to encourage you. Just like Florence did, to to take that step because there's something about being together that's very special. Not only hearing the voices of people who are singing, but there's something about the sacred meaning of baptism. Nobody gets baptized through a screen. Uh, And also, it's always great to hear people's voices those who know how to sing and those who maybe are next to you who, you know, they're trying. They're trying. But we're all learning to worship God with our voices, with our lives. And this morning, morning we're we're continuing in a series that we started last week called Higher Love. And this series really captures some of the, the challenges and the pressures that we face in life. And it has to do with what it means that the Bible helps us think about love differently. We live in a culture where we think about love based on how we feel. Last week, we looked at how easy it is to think about love, that when things go well, we feel God loves us. When things are a mess, we struggle with that. And we've been in this story in the Old Testament, which is the story of Ruth. And if you were here last week, we know that the story of Ruth and the family she's a part of, their lives are just so painfully broken. They've gone through such difficult challenges. And maybe you weren't here, and actually if you were here, I encourage you to read on in the next few chapters. Uh, some of you maybe did that, some of you maybe ignored me because nobody's going to tell you what to do, you're one of those people. Uh, I get it, you know. But if you read it, you know that into the story of Ruth, things get more hopeful, but sometimes get a bit more confusing. And Ruth is trying to figure something out that I think at some point we all have to figure out, is how do you move on? How do you move on from loss? How do you move on from a broken relationship? How do you move on from a painful work experience? Like, just how do you move on? And how do you move on in life believing that God is still with you, that God still cares, that God still has hope, that God still has strength for you, that a new chapter can begin, and that is very difficult to do sometimes. We have all kinds of things that we say or comments we make about like, you know, just, you know, get over it or, you know, just take one for the team, move on, you know. But we know that the pain of death, the pain of suffering kind of just lives there sometimes. If you are here last week, you know that Ruth is part of this complex story. And I want to tell you about two people that you really need to know about right at the beginning of the story. If you've read it, you know this. But the two people are Naomi and Ruth that we kind of centered on or finished off last week. Naomi and Ruth have something in common. Both of them were married and lost their husband. So they're both widows. But also what's really profound about this story is that Ruth is a young woman who's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And we're kind of living with them in this story as they experience the tension of going through this loss and this suffering. And they're trying to pay attention to how God is at work, how God is moving in their midst, and how God is maybe answering their prayers. And maybe you know that feeling. You know that feeling of praying, and maybe not feeling your prayers answered. You know that feeling of when that happens a few times, you know what you do, I know what I do, I just stop praying. And then I start to believe weird things like, oh, everything just happens for a reason, God will just work it out. And we forget that actually God is calling us to grow and to step into moments of His favor and His grace. And things don't just work themselves out. Now you need to know about Naomi and Ruth, you also need to know about kind of where they're living now. Because they just made a trip from a place called Moab to a region in the Bible called Bethlehem or where God's people are. So they have a long trip that they've made. So they're tired, and they're trying to figure out what do we do next. And Ruth in particular, it's really important, Ruth is from Moab. So for her to make this trip, she's basically left everything she knows. She's left her parents, she's left her family, and she's made this trip, and she's moved to a place where she's a stranger and a foreigner. And she's done this because she's been Selfless. She's decided that what was most important about her life is that she should commit her life to walking and going to be with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's probably older, who needs help, and Ruth has done this, and she's kind of a beautiful example as you read the story of maybe things that you want in your own life, and you want to grow in your own life, and you're trying to make sense of that. So I kind of got you all caught up, right? Everybody caught up? We kind of know where we are? Don't miss church, okay? Don't miss church. Okay, I'm kidding. Uh, Chapter two begins with this kind of reminder of what happens next. We're told this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, remember he's passed away, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now you might kind of read your Bible. If you ever try to do a devotional, you maybe read something and something stands out. So if you read this later this week, you know what should stand out to you? Really important that there's there's, there's this relative and that Ruth is wondering if God's favor is still available to her in this difficult time. And they wonder about what's the next step and how do, we, how do we move on from this. And we're told at the beginning of chapter 2 what's important is that Ruth is trying to understand what would it look like if God's favor was still with me? What would it look like if someone out there would help me? And you have to understand that because she's a foreigner, she's trying to think about how she's going to provide, how she's going to eat, how she's going to kind of, the next chapter of her life is going to begin. And I love the beginning of this chapter. Because I think I grew up and I struggled understanding this idea of God's favor. When you hear the word God's favor, I don't know what you think of, maybe you have a, a weird experience. Like I think of the English word for favorite, like someone is my favorite. And so it's easy to think, oh, I hope I'm God's favorite, and I hope you're not, so sucks to be you. But whatever, it's like God picks people who are his favorites, and everyone else, well, too bad. Like we have all these ideas about God's favor, and I'm going to talk about this word a lot. If you want to think of another word that's really the meaning of the root word is the word is grace. And so what we're told is right at the beginning of chapter 2 is Ruth doesn't think that God's favor is just waiting for like some magical things, good things to happen to her. She's thinking about how God's favor will show up and also that she has to go to work. That she holds together that she has a part to play as she waits and thinks about where God's favor might come from. And we're given this context that for Naomi, there's a person who's part of their family line connected to her husband who likely has this land, and Ruth is going to find this person, and his name is Boaz. Now, you need to know this, that when you read the Bible, especially when you read the Old Testament, if you don't really understand the larger story, it's really hard to understand sometimes. That's why we have Bible studies or Alpha and all these different teachings to kind of help you to grow in that. Because if you read it alone, sometimes you get stuck and you're like, I don't like the Bible. Like, it's too hard. I'm not reading it anymore. And we miss the beauty of what God is trying to teach us through the Bible. Now, there's this ancient law in the Bible, It's ancient practices for how people were to act based on their land, based on their property, and based on their property and other people who were around them. Now, we don't often think about that because we have a fence or a dog, I don't know, whatever you have, right? Maybe you have a cat. You just have, like, just parameters. You have a tree. But I have this tree next to my house. One of my great neighbor, they have have this tree. And as it grows every year, it grows a bit bigger. It comes closer to my fence, so this year I noticed something that the branches are moving just a little bit over my fence and some trees are there. So I wondered, is there a law about the, the apples of this tree that are just over my fence? Are they my apples or do they still belong to him? What's the law? We don't know and we don't care, right? None of you care. You're like, oh, I can't believe it. I don't even care. I hate apples. Whatever. You're here now. But we realize that the idea is sometimes we have things that just work themselves out but not in the Bible. In the Bible, there were such important parameters for land and how someone cared for someone else that was near their land. And there's all these important laws. And one of the books in the Bible that helps us with some of this is the book of Leviticus. It's this book that's a bit of a challenge to read. I kind of like it. Pastors like it because it has to do with spiritual leaders and how they help other people follow God. But there's actually this principle in the book of Leviticus that I want to read to you. And it has to do, you'll see it on screen there, it has to do with the Ruth story. This is what we're told. It says that when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. It's this beautiful principle. And if you're, you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, that these laws are not just like, all oh, these laws, oh, nobody cares. No, no. They're laws that pointed the people of God to the character of God. Okay, remember that their laws that were put in place, not as a burden, not as a punishment, but as a guidance so that they would never forget the God that they worshipped and what he's like. And when you read this and you see it, you realize, wait a second, the God of Israel, he not only loves them, but he loves foreigners and he says there's a law in place to protect the poor to protect those that find themselves near your land, who don't have anything, they don't have friends, they don't have property, and your land, your blessing is meant to bless them as well. So, so as you kind of look at all your land, leave some on the outside, some margin, so other people would know that I am the real God and that I care about them. I don't know what comes to mind as you think about this, but it is hard to think about this in our own lives, but Ruth is praying. She's praying that as she steps out and she's asking for someone's favor to be on her, She's praying that she'll find somebody in the land who's made enough room in their hearts, not only for the teachings of God, but a person who's not addicted to greed. A person who's not greedy enough to take everything that's theirs and to take everything on their their land to say, this is all mine. God says, it's not all yours. It's all mine. So make sure you leave some for others. And at the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth knows that she's going to have to hope that there is some grain, some food that is on the outskirts of the land. You think about this for us. How easy it is for us to forget this. That what we have is not really ours, but it's ours, but we make margin in what we have to remember that it's all God's. This is why debt is so bad. This is why having debt is so painful for us. Because having debt that is uncontrollable makes it impossible for us to respond to the goodness of God when God says, this is not just about you. My character is that my blessing on you should be a blessing to those around you that you should be able to help, to respond to a need. And over time, you just have this pressure in our culture to get busier, more stuff. I'm really, really busy, you know, I think, I have all these kids, I have all these responsibilities, we should buy a dog, oh yeah, that's a good idea, throw that in there, all right. And we should get a parrot, oh yeah, we should do that. And after a while, you're like, whose idea, what happened to us? Can I just encourage you to think about your life over the next few weeks? As you see the pressures and the anxiety of our culture to have no margin, no room, no ability to say, no, no, I'm not going to be greedy and want more and more and more. I'm going to make some room with my time to serve, to just have a coffee with someone who's discouraged. I'm going to make some room maybe to give, to help someone who's less fortunate. I'm going to create some space, some margin in my life. For, For you parents, here's like kind of a breakthrough moment. It's okay to say no to your kids. They don't need five birthday parties every day. They don't need all the things. Some of you are like, I'm offended. We're going to miss you. Okay? So we're at this place where we are dealing with people with anxiety and mental health, and all they need to hear is a word of truth that says, you know what? God has created us, and we're going to need margin. We're going to need some room, just a bit of space, because it's in those spaces that God's favor becomes available to us. We start to see God do certain things because we made room and He uses us to bless someone else and we're like, I can't believe that happened. I think of a time in my life where this happened. Bev and I had just gotten married. We we kind of young in our marriage. We just had one son and we were kind of making sense of our life and we were invited to this birthday party just adults and we had our our young son was a baby and as we were at this birthday party i remember like as a couple thinking about like how do we make like room in our lives like for church and for god and you know i was a pastor and i think well how do i make we make room in our finances you know to be faithful with our giving all these things we have to work out right and we go to this birthday party and as we're at this party somebody who's at this birthday party is a friend of the friend who's hosting the party and they said to us that they were a student at the university and they were from out of town and they were riding their bike back and forth to school, and somebody stole their bike. And I was like, oh, that's brutal. I'm like, it's just thought about that, listening to them. And as they're sharing about this painful moment, they don't have much, I sense God saying to me, you're going to provide a bike. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I hope this is not God. All right. I'm like, I'm just banking that my wife says no. You ever bank on that? I'm like, I hope my wife has a greedy week. And you're like, she's done. Any of you married to people like that? Yeah, okay. I'm usually that in my marriage. But I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure. And then so as we leave this party, I say to my wife, like you know, I was talking to so and so, and did you hear about the story? Their bike, somebody stole their bike, and I feel like, as we've been kind of trusting God and setting money aside and thinking about how can we respond generously, that we should buy them a bike. So she's like, well, you know, let's just see. So I contacted the host, and I just said, I don't know the person's name, but they needed a bike. We don't want them to know anything. We just want to provide some money for them. I'm like, how much do bikes go for? Like how? And they said, well, you know, eight hundred, a thousand. I said, a thousand dollars. I said it wasn't the Lord. For sure it wasn't the Lord. (laughs) It's confirmed. Amen. Amen. i was like, what? They're like, yeah, you know, it depends. They're adults, whatever. All these things, we go through it. We finally said, it doesn't matter. We want to model something that we know is at the heart of the character of God. We might not do that with our land, but we do that with our time and our resources so that we can respond. Ruth is banking on this happening. Ruth is banking on someone that she meets that is not gripped by greed. That is still faithful to the laws of Israel, and they know this. And she meets Boaz. It's an incredible moment in the story. And this is what we're told when Boaz shows up and he sees her. They're told this. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvest, probably very wealthy, many harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? He notices Ruth. He's like, I have a lot of people here, but that young woman there, she's new. Like, who? Who's she a part of? Whose family is she a part of? Now, it can be hard for us in a modern culture to hear that, because for us, we think of like, you know, it's weird that somebody belongs to a a family, and we have all kinds of complexities in our culture around, you know, the pressures of slavery, colonialism, and, you know, some of you know that. But we have to remember that some of those ideas are not the way people in the Bible thought about relationships. Actually, in the Bible, when somebody thought about a family, they thought about not only their nucleus family, but extended family and grandparents and kids and siblings. They were part of one family. So if we had to define family in the Bible, you'd be thinking of like a Christmas banquet. Like 40 people, 50 people, whatever. That would be the family. And usually the head of the family could make decisions that impacted everybody in the family. That's a different time, but we have to know that. And there's a sense that for Ruth... She's not part of any family, and now she's trying to find her place. And for us, that's weird. Because, like, I can't even handle my little family. I'm like, I don't know more people. I'm more family? Like, that's a lot. But to read the Bible well, you have to kind of enter into that space. It would have been so important for someone to belong to a family. It would have meant that they were taken care of. It would have meant that somebody was there if they struggled. It would have meant they were, they were closely knit. In a way that we've lost that today. And so Boaz notices that there's this young woman and he inquires about it. And I want remember, you're going to read chapter 2, right? 1 and 2, right? You're going to get to this point. You're going to be like, oh, this is spicy. Boaz is, he he's, notices Ruth, right? Now, just so you know, Boaz is a little bit older. He owns this land. He owns harvesters. God, God's blessed them in the land. And at some point, he begins to talk with Ruth. And we know if you read the rest of the chapter, he's also done a bit of his homework. He knows what Ruth has done for Naomi. He knows a little bit about what's happening in the situation. And at one point, he has a chat with Ruth, and this is what he says to her. Just imagine how profound this would be for her. He says this, So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and it goes on about all the things he, he's preparing so she can feel safe. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground she asked him why have i found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner if you remember like ruth like she left praying that she would find someone like this and now she gets there and she meets boaz and boaz begins to act like someone that she never imagined but he's starting to begin to show this favor This this reminder that she doesn't have to see herself just as a foreigner, as a stranger, as someone who doesn't belong anywhere, but now she can start seeing herself as someone who belongs. You know, at the 180, we often use language like this. Maybe you're watching online, you're exploring churches, and one of the phrases we often will say is that God calls us to belong to a people so that we we can become more like Jesus. Belonging is not just a feeling, it's not just I hope everybody likes me, it's we belong to become someone else. This is a very unique thing, because in our culture, belonging is like, I go, I'm on a hockey league, or whatever, not in church. In the context of our faith, belonging is for something bigger. And Ruth is invited to belong to this, so she can become and see herself as part of this new family. Not just a foreigner, not just a stranger, not just someone who just sees themselves almost as a slave even, that could just stay at the outskirts of the land. Boaz says, no, 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 Ruth. No, you don't have to do that anymore. I even talked to the men. I even talk to these men who sometimes they see a foreign girl and they think they can take advantage of her. You don't even have to worry about that. Boaz is so important in this story. He represents not only this leader connected to Naomi, but he also, for many scholars who teach about this story in a deeper way, he represents a, a type, it's called a typology. He, he represents like a figure who's going to look a lot the way Jesus will act or how Jesus will be when Jesus comes. He will do things that Ruth can't do for herself. He's going to start to prepare things. And for Ruth... She sees this as God's favor. Now, I told you that the word favor, do I am making make a note of this, is translated, if you read it in another language, actually in the French Bible it says this, is that the word for favor is the word grace. Okay, so if you're thinking about that word, just think of the word grace. Now, people are not often familiar with this idea of grace, but grace is such an essential Christian doctrine. Okay, it's an essential teaching of, of, of the whole Christian story. So for the few minutes I have, Especially if you're new, this will really help you. At least you'll be like, I didn't know that about Christianity, right? To help you understand the uniqueness of God's grace. Because if you don't learn this, you'll connect favor and grace to just like, hopefully you do something good and God blesses you. And that's not what grace is. So just in a simple way, I want you to remember that grace is this overflowing goodness of God. Grace, in a most simple, basic understanding, is the overflowing goodness of God. And this understanding of grace applies to everyone. Okay? It applies to people who are Christians. It applies to atheists. It applies to people you don't like. It applies to people you do like. It applies to kids. It even applies to your dog and your cat. God's grace is overflowing goodness because it flows out of His character. God is a God of grace and love. And he overflows in such a way. And in theology, if you want to write this down, this is called common grace. It's common to everybody. Meaning you get up in the morning and the sun is there. You wonder about the nature and you hate the rain, but God is watering the plants. He doesn't care if you don't like the rain. God is just caring for things all around. It's his grace. It's this common grace that we even forget and take advantage of because it's just always there. It's always there. Like just we're going to stop right now and just imagine right now, This planet is spinning at a speed that is insane. Do any of you feel you're moving? I don't. There's something about the way the world has been wired and created that it holds us together, and God's grace is called gravity in that moment. Like, there's something that just happens. Like, it just comes together, and it's this common grace that we can study, we can reflect on it, we can have formulas for it, but we're like, it just holds this together. Take a deep breath. You're like, just things work. Like, just this common grace. So remember that this common grace, this favor of God, there's a part of it that is for everyone. This is open to everyone. And Ruth is starting to experience this through the fact that Boaz is acting in ways that demonstrate this this grace. But then I want to show you another thing, that you have this common grace, but then you have grace at a deeper level. This is the grace that we connect to being saved, to not only seeing that God is a creator who loves us and is just so gracious, but He's also a saving God. That He doesn't just create us, but He actually steps into the messy world that we live in, and He gives us a deeper understanding of grace. And in the New Testament, we have amazing passages on this, but let me just read one for you, so you can kind of maybe think about it. It says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. Meaning it's nothing you can do, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, So that no one can boast. I can't say I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. No, no, no one has this. It's a gift. For we are God's handiwork. Some translations will say masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I love this passage on Grace. I thought about it a lot this week for those who were getting baptized. I thought about reading some testimonies and just seeing that God was already finding them and with them and journeying with them. Because there's something about grace that's a gift. It's common for everybody, but at some point, there's this gift where our eyes are open, and we realize that God was there, and it's not enough to just believe in God, that if Jesus is true, we need to follow God in this new life. We actually need somebody to come and save us, so we step into this saving grace. Maybe some of you are right at that place. Some of you are maybe just at that place where you're like, I believe in God, and you know, I, I feel like good things have happened to me, and I'm not sure, and God's trying to show you. Maybe your next step is to say, you know what? There's the gift of grace but there's you responding to that gift. Because the Bible says that this gift of grace should stir us to good works. This is so profound. Because if you're not sure, sometimes you think of like, oh, I have to do a lot of things so that God will be gracious to me. I have to work more, I have to act, I have to be a better parent. Some of you do, but I mean in general. You know, it's just, it's a joke, okay? So, you know, we, we, if only we did more things, then his grace would be there. No, no, grace is a what? It's a gift. It's a gift. And we just get to the place where we realize that this common grace that everybody has, and then there's this gift that is linked to us realizing we need to be saved from the mess that we've made. And it's the saving moment, disgrace. grace. Now I want you to remember this, that for Ruth, she's experiencing this common grace because she's done nothing wrong. But now she's about to start to taste that this grace that Boaz is showing, has all these benefits to it. So I want you to just remember, maybe write this down to remember, you go to the next slide, that we can't just understand grace, we have to learn to live in the benefits of God's grace. Okay? It's not just an idea, and it's not even something we sing about. It's something that is there, but then we learn together to everyday walk and step into the benefits of being those who are lavished by God's grace. Ruth is going to have a real problem with this. Ruth is going to struggle with this. Because she's often going to feel in the story like, what have I done? And imagine saying to her, nothing. What can I do? Nothing. Are you sure? I want to pay you back. You can't. I feel that sometimes. For so many time, years in my life, I thought, you know what? Like, what do I do to make sure God knows? Am I, Have I done enough? Will I do enough? And you know what I realized? I love to see God's grace at work in other people's lives. But I never knew how to receive it in my own life. I didn't know how to just surrender and say, I need this grace in my life. I need God's help. And we love it in others, but we never know how to receive this grace. So remember this. Remember chapter 2 of Ruth. That Ruth is learning that you can't earn God's grace, but you must learn how to embrace it. Just remember that. You can never earn it, but you also have to learn to embrace it in such a way where you can step into the things that God is calling you to do. The good works that overflow as a benefit of His grace. Chapter 3, chapter 4 in Ruth, that's going to happen. You're going to see these moments. And so what happens as the story goes on, and it, it's kind of beautiful. Boaz starts to keep, he keeps coming back to Ruth on and on. A few different moments. At one point, he's going to invite Ruth to come and eat, eat with him. And she's like, am I allowed to do that? I don't know. Whoa, am I, this is kind of fresh. I don't know. She doesn't say that. That's just my idea. But, but it's like he, she, she comes and she realizes. And then Boaz is like, no, no you, you don't worry. Like, don't worry about anything. Like, you, just, you can just experience the goodness that I have here. Remember, she's starting to realize, wait a second. I wonder if it ever hit her. She prayed about this. She asked God to do this. And God is starting to do this. And now she's going to step into this. This is what we're told happens next. It's so beautiful. So Ruth gleaned in the fields until evening. She carried it back to the town. So it's just she, got, she kept collecting. And her, and, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. It's prosperity right there. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over. She had eaten after she had eaten enough. Can you imagine at the end of the day... This moment where you get back home and you're like, where did you, did you go to Costco? Like what's going on here? The only way I can think about it as I was studying, it's like you go to work and every day you get a bonus. Like every day, some of you be like, sign me up. Like once a year maybe, but like every day you come back home and you tell your spouse, your friends, I got a promotion today, but did you get a promotion yesterday? Yeah, but our boss is amazing. Boaz is like, no, no, you just take more and you'll have so much more. She'll eat, she'll have more. She'll bring it to Naomi. It's so beautiful. She's starting to get a taste of God's grace. This goodness that is available to her and extends now to others around her because Naomi's going to be blessed. If you read on, something happens, and I want to tell you this because it's an important marker for your life and for my life, and you need to know this, that there is a sign of knowing if you are learning to embrace God's grace. Okay, There is a sign. You could pay attention to this in your life. You can think about your life, your week, year, paying attention that when you start to, you understand God's grace and you start to embrace it as your own, is there's no way around expressing that and telling others about it. There is no way of experiencing God's grace and then not telling anyone. I always think about meeting somebody who just got engaged and they don't tell anyone. Yeah. Meeting somebody who just got a new ring and they're like, no, 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 it's nothing. I don't, But why are you so happy? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. No, no. But well, what happened? Like, are you in love? Is it that guy? No, no, it's not that guy. Maybe it is. I don't know. All right. So you realize that there's something about this grace that when you start to see it seep into your heart, it takes root. You got to just, you got to tell people there's something about God's love. There's something about how my life is changing. There's something about his peace and his goodness that seems to follow me. Well, what did you do? I didn't do anything. I just have learned to embrace it and step into it. And and Ruth is going to tell Naomi about this. She's going to start to tell Naomi, like today when I, you remember I left and scholars are not sure about the timeline, like how long she's been gone, but she's back with like food and goodness. And Ruth will tell Naomi, it's profound, so beautiful. She says this, she tells her about Boaz, and this is what Naomi says. The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, meaning her husband who had been gone. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers, we're told. This word, guardian redeemers, or kinsman redeemer, is going to come up again in the, the rest of this book. So I just want to end by telling you about this. That for Naomi, she realizes Boaz, Boaz has been so faithful and God has continued to bless him. Ruth, you found found Boaz. This is so good for us. It's not only good for me, but it's good for you that God has answered our prayers and we're in this new land, Ruth, and you can find your place now to be one of us, with us. And Naomi will say, there's this role in the Hebrew story. There's this role in the ancient laws. You remember the laws of the land, right? There's also laws for protectors of the people. And they're like these guardians. Any of you ever watch Guardian of the Galaxies? Movie? It's just a movie. Some people watch yeah. Okay. It's like there's people, they're guardians of things, they're guardians of, they're guardians of whole regions. Well, the Jewish people had men who were selected who were guardians over people when their loved ones had died or when someone in their family was gone or if they were going to be poor and widows. They had to step in as that person. It even could get violent sometimes, meaning if someone had, God forbid, killed my brother, you know, then I would have to step in and go find that person and defend the name of my family. It was, it's serious stuff. And there's laws for how to do this. Boaz, we learn at the end, is one of those people because of God's blessing, because of God's calling, that he is kind of regulated by the law, obliged by the law to respond and to care not only for Naomi, but now Ruth, who's connected to the story and to begin to make room so that they would be taken care of. Now, if you're taking some notes, I want to leave you with a thought. And I told you earlier that there's something about Jesus that will be very similar to Boaz. There's something about the story of Jesus where Boaz is obliged to step in, where Jesus is not obliged to step in. And that Jesus is going to enter the mess of our story, and he begins to prepare us to receive his grace the way Boaz is starting to help that happen in the story of Ruth. Now, for some of you, maybe you're thinking about your life, and you're thinking about how God has been good to you, but you're also thinking about times in your life where maybe you've prayed and you've wondered how to see God at work. And maybe even the the challenge of how do you move on to the next chapter? How do you grow just a bit more? Can I remind you that it's always going to begin with God's grace on your life? Maybe for you, it's just the first level of grace. Where it's just this common reality that God has been with you. You didn't have the right words. You're not even sure you have a Bible. You're not sure you believe in God. But there's something about your life. And you're like, I think God has been with me. But now he's calling you to take another step. And that step actually is a step where those who were baptized began to sense that there's this deeper step of saying, I need to learn to embrace this grace for myself and to grow in it now. And you're learning that. And I want to tell you that as we leave this room and as we live our life in this painful world, is everything around us will make us doubt God's grace, will make us believe we don't need God's grace, will make us feel like we have to earn God's grace, work harder, do more. And that's why we invite you regularly to learn the Bible with us, to grow in understanding this because all we can do is embrace and surrender to this grace. I want to leave you with this image because it's an image of a story I heard a while ago and it's this image of a story of a man who had these birds. He had bought these birds and he got all of these birds and he realized one day that birds are not meant to be in a cage, birds are meant to fly. And this person, he you know, put them in a cage and he said, you know what, when I go to bed tonight I'm just going to open the door of the cage and I'm going to let the birds fly. And he got up in the morning and most of the birds were gone but one was still in the cage. The door was open but it just couldn't get out. It just couldn't imagine that it could fly and learn how to fly and it's a profound story. An image of sometimes, you know, if you stop using your wings for a long time you forget you have them. If you stop believing that God loves you and there's a possibility all you start to see is your life through your life in a cage. Your old life, the old you, the way things are, all the stories you tell yourself about you For Ruth, she still is working out what it means that maybe she's not a foreigner anymore. Maybe she's not just a stranger in this land. Maybe God is saying to her that a new identity is about to emerge. And God has provided people, people who are being obedient like Boaz, other people in the story like the women and the harvesters, and they're starting to help her take the next step so she can move on and taste of God's goodness. These are essential lessons of embracing God's favor on our lives. God has so many things in store for you and for me. And I want to encourage you this week to think of maybe even just one area of your life that you still feel like maybe feels like a cage. Maybe for you it's your giving. Greed has your heart. Maybe for you it's lust. Maybe for you it's this or that. And I have my own things that I have to daily surrender. Say, Jesus, you made it possible because your grace is available but I have to learn to live in the benefits of that grace. Just stand as we pray. Maybe for you as I pray, you wanna just open up your hands as a sign of saying, God, I need to learn how to fly again. I need to learn what it means that I don't have to earn your grace but I need to step into the gift of the saving grace that you make available. Let's just pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to show us the character of God and his graciousness towards us. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures and the story of Ruth and the many things that we can learn as we look back to a difficult time, a sad time, a painful time where all hope maybe was lost, but you were there. You were teaching people to be obedient and you were helping people to respond to you. And Jesus, together today, those in this room and those online, we just believe that you're still doing that. You're still calling us to this deeper place of trusting you and your grace for us. I pray for this. And those in this room maybe who feel as outsiders. Maybe just the weight of debt, of a certain sense of poverty of our culture, anxiety, I pray that your favor and your grace would just flow over them today as they open their hearts up to begin to surrender to this grace. I pray for the gift of baptism. I thank you for those who took that step today. I thank you for the reminder that their lives now are an example to us, that things are not perfect, but we can grow in the benefits of your grace for us. And as we go now, would you stretch us and teach us what it means to follow you and to honor you with our lives. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, we love you, gang. We're so happy to see so many of you. Please take a minute and hug those who are baptized. Say thank you to our team with our kids. If you're watching online, love you. Hope to see you soon. God bless everyone. See you next week.